When we read the, the Word of God, we're reading what it says about itself, that it is alive and it's active. When Jesus preached these words, they were the words coming out of the mouth of the Son of God, of God himself. When 2,000 years later, when we're unpacking the sermon that he preached, it's no less alive than it was then when he first preached these words. But something that's really easy for us to do is to extract verses out of any part of Scripture, but even out of this one part of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and begin to apply them in a way that doesn't pay attention to the whole sermon. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 was one sermon. And it's powerful because it's the Word of God, but it's also powerful when we see the way in which Christ put the sermon together. It matters. And so when we come across a piece of the sermon like this, where he's talking primarily about anxiety, and he's talking about the Father, and the way in which the Father cares about us, we cannot miss the context for which it sets in between the beginning of the sermon and the end. It's really important. It all takes us back to the Beatitudes as we encounter every one of these exhortations. So this morning, what I want to do is show you what Christ is saying about anxiety. Then I want to look particularly at the verses 22 through 24, where he talks about the I, and then he talks about two different masters. If you were not here last Sunday, as I've already said, I preached about the heavenly treasures versus the earthly treasures. So let's begin by seeing this in the context of anxiety. How many of you experience anxiety? Raise your hand. That's all of us. Nobody doesn't experience anxiety because we live in a fallen world. Some experience it in different ways. Some it's chronic. Others it's kind of just the elements of life. But we all know what anxiety does to us. We know how it feels. And if you struggle with it, please never hesitate to reach out. Reach out to the pastors, our staff, so that we can walk alongside you. It is part of being in a fallen world that we experience anxiety. But what really is it? Now, there are a lot of definitions that you could look at, but I want, you to, I want us to work with this one. Anxiety is born in us, and that's true of all of us because we're in a fallen world. Anxiety is born in us when we encounter pain or the threat of pain. And our limited ability to do anything about it is exposed. I'm going to say that again. Anxiety is born in us when we encounter pain or the threat of pain against us, against loved ones, against friends. Anxiety is born in us when we encounter pain or the threat of pain. And our limited ability to do anything about it is exposed. So what's exposed is our limited power. What's exposed is our limited knowledge. What's exposed is our limited resources. What, what's exposed is our limited ability to be present. If your child is going through something, whether they're an adult child or a young child, you cannot be ever-present. You are not all-knowing. You are not all-powerful, and you know it. And when the pain that is real or the threat of pain which might become real, exposes those limits, we begin to meditate. We meditate because that's what anxiety is. 
Anxiety is meditating on the what ifs. And it's meditating on the limits that we have. What the word of God is calling us to is biblical meditation, which is not on the problems themselves, but on God who is great and on God who is good. Take this bulletin home. Go back over what we read in the Heidelberg Catechism. These are true statements about our living God. So every one of us experience anxiety. What Jesus is doing in this sermon is he's identifying three areas of anxiety that those listening to him were experiencing. What are they? It's very easy to see. They were worried about food. They were worried about drink. They were worried about clothing. They were worried about necessities of life that they felt the limited ability to do something about. That was exposed. For most of us, that is not our primary concern. Most of us aren't worried about if we will eat lunch today, but where. Most of us are not concerned about will we have clothing, but what does our clothing look like? The worries of this world, though, always present an opportunity for the evil one, the tempter, to take our eyes off of the one master who is Jesus and to put our affection or our security in someone or something else besides Jesus. In fact, one of his great works, one of his masterpieces, is when he makes us think wrongly about things that Jesus said. For example, Jesus said, and it is so clear in verse 24, you cannot serve God and money. But I want to tell you the truth. Most of you don't believe Jesus. At this point, most of you, like me, struggle to really believe that we can't do that. Sure we can. We can serve God and we can serve money. That's Satan's masterpiece. We can't. Jesus couldn't be more clear. But because we truly are in Christ, we are given by the enemy this temptation to believe that we can. And what Jesus is doing with such compassion is showing us how to deal with the things that would take our eyes off of the one true God, off of the one master that matters most. And so I want to look at this this morning for a bit. He talks about the eye first. Go with me to verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. He then says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And notice, as you look at the text, that's not a question. How great is the darkness? Question mark. It's a statement. How great is the darkness? So if we have an eye that is unhealthy, an unhealthy eye is looking at something as a substitute other than Christ. And it could be good things, not just bad things. Any substitute for Christ, something or someone, that means the eye is looking at dark things. This is important. You and I, when we come to saving faith in Jesus, we are made new. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We've been given a new heart. 
We have been given a new mind. We have been given new eyes. So we actually can have eyes that are healthy. We actually can see things that are good and righteous and holy and heavenly as their treasures. We can, by God's grace. Never forget that. But it's only by his grace. This side of heaven, though, because we live in the fallen world, the darkness, the decay, we have anxiety. The temptation is to offer something else for our eyes to see that will take the place of Jesus in terms of how secure we feel. And money is one of those things that has the power to truly make us feel secure. Babies cry. It's okay. Keep your eyes up here. And hopefully you're looking at Jesus, not me. We have a temptation to put our security in insecure things. And we all face it. We all know it. And so what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting in the context in the middle of this sermon, the fatherhood of God. God the Father. Go back over, start chapter six again. Just begin to underline how many times Jesus uses the word father. What Jesus is showing us is that the Father is bringing you and me profound wisdom to know how to live in a world that is sad, in a world that is broken, in a world that is deeply insecure. And what Jesus is saying is don't pursue earthly treasures. Don't set your eye on things of this earth to make you secure. And because money is one of those things that gives the illusion of security, don't make it your master. And don't be duped into believing you can actually serve money and serve God. You can't. So this is something we all need to hear. What are you looking at? Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What do you spend your time looking at? Why do you look at it? I'm not just talking now about things that are knowingly immoral, but what are good things that you're looking at constantly that might be tempted to take you from the great? Where do you spend your time letting your eye go? What are you fixing your gaze upon? The profound beauty of God is he knows we can't even see that ourselves. So we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate. What am I looking at? What am I going after? Does it reveal that my eye is healthy or that my eye is bad, that it's sick? The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Every Sunday during one of the worship services, my phone, probably like yours, for some reason, I didn't ask it to do this, gives me an update on how much time I've spent looking at this device. Now, I could go a little deeper and see all the things I looked at. I don't think there's anything on there that is immoral, but there are so many things on there that are worthless compared to what I could be focused on. I'm not saying it's wrong to look at the transfer portal daily in college football, but compared to what my eyes can be fixed on, it's somewhat worthless. We need to see what the Lord wants us to see, and is there any place where we're taking our eyes off of him? A few 
years ago, sometime in the last two years, I would say, I preached a sermon about how foolish coaches are in terms of things that they say and things that players in the locker room say back to them. I shared the story of how my football team, we sang our fight song at the end of every game, whether we won or lost. And one of the lines in the song says this, we, sing, we sung it loud, no one else can beat us when we wear the blue and gold. Fight, fight, fight. Well, the first time I ever sang that song, we had lost the game. The second time I sang it, we had lost another. It wasn't true, but we do it anyway. I shared that and went on to make fun of Coach Eric Taylor, a fiction coach and a show that many of you watched and a book you read called Friday Night Lights, which is about a religion in Texas. And Eric Taylor would shout out in every episode, I would imagine, I didn't really watch the whole thing, he would shout out, clear eyes, full heart. See, the youth section knows it. They're over there by Paul Goebel. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. That is so ridiculous. I think in the first episode, they lost the game. One person, after hearing that, bought me this t-shirt. This is the most comfortable t-shirt I own. You should feel it. It feels good. And I wear it when I do yard work and I paint. But sometimes I forget I have it on and I go to the store. And then I realize, oh, how ridiculous and embarrassing that I'm wearing this this shirt, this statement, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. But you know what the truth is? While that has no measurable application that should give any player confidence on any court or field of sport, for those who are in Christ, when our eyes are clear, when our hearts really are full, when our eyes are healthy and our heart is centered on heavenly treasures, the treasure Jesus, we can't lose. The things of this earth that are tempting us to put our security in them, amassing wealth, buying things we don't really need, spending more money than we should, these things that seek to be our treasure, to be our masters, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, Jesus is not teaching here, or scripture doesn't teach anywhere that money is evil. It teaches that the love of money is evil. And friends, you're lying to yourself we are lying to one another if we would say we are not tempted to love money, to put our security there. So Jesus, in his compassion, is warning them just as he's warning us. And he's saying, you can't serve two masters. You cannot love money and serve money and love me and serve me. You can't. It's his word.
It's not just some prophet. It's not just some teacher. It's not just some preacher. It's Jesus himself who is the word. And he brings that to us with compassion, but strong warning so that we would be set free from something that could ultimately devour us, the sight of heaven. On Friday, the numbers were given this Friday. 30, 43, 45, 46, 61, and then the mega ball, 14. That ticket was purchased by someone, and maybe we know who it is now, we didn't this morning, from a little gas station named Hometown Gas and Grill in Lebanon, Maine. Any of you in Maine over the week? The winning ticket is for the second largest jackpot in history, $1.35 billion. Did you hear that? And some of you are like, well, he's not going to get all that. You're right. He's only going to get $742 million. Or she, the shop owner's name's Fred Cotro, if I'm pronouncing it right, said this. It's almost incomprehensible to wrap your head around how much it would change somebody's life. Yet, if you want to look up under the title, The Lottery Ruined My Life, you'll hear a percentage of those lottery winners which talk about the cost of winning. The point I want to make this morning is that no amount of money, and money itself isn't evil, no amount of money can ever take the place of the one who is ultimately secure, and that is Jesus. Jesus Christ tells us clearly There are two masters, and the teaching that he's giving, he says very specifically, you cannot serve God and money. How do we know if we're serving money? And how do we know if we're serving God? What well, has something to do with what your eyes and who your eyes are focused on? But friend, what I want to tell you clearly is that you and I do not have the ability to see in and of ourselves where we might be gradually or grossly serving another master other than Christ. So the way I want to end this morning and we're going to pick right back up here next week and move more into the anxiety and how the master teaches us, is I want to go to the end of the sermon, but I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen. A couple pages over, Jesus finishes his sermon this way. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell 
that would be anxiety producing. The floods came, that would be anxiety producing. The winds blew and beat on the house, that would be scary. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The wise man listens to the words of Jesus. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine, just like the wise men did, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Because of how alluring and tempting money is and how much it desires to make us its servants, the Lord graciously warns us that everything we have, we have in him. When we see in and of ourselves again and again, day after day, how fickle we are, how we really are men and women and children of little faith, we go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is why the way Jesus put it together matters as much as what he said. And he began it with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, who mourn over their fickleness, who mourn over the temptation to surrender to money, to serve another master. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's why Jesus was talking about food and drink and clothing. He knows we need those things, but there's something greater. And that's thirsting for righteousness. There's something greater than earthly clothes. And that's the garment of Jesus who died on the cross that we could live forever and we have him. Who are you serving? Ask the Lord to show you. It's very possible because of where we live and who's around us that we've been duped into believing that even though Jesus said you can't serve God and money, that we believe we can. And we need God's profound grace to show us once again, you can't. And I died to be your master. Lord Jesus, thanks for your word. I'm glad you spoke it. It's so gentle and strong to think that God the Father knows everything we need and Father, I know some here today are struggling with profound anxieties. Oh Lord, let them see your compassion and draw them near. 
I know, Father, today that most of us live constantly with the temptation to put our security in insecure things. Strip those away that we might see how secure we really are, hidden, hidden in Jesus, our Master, our Lord, our Savior, Redeemer, Friend, and King. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.